This is Wednesday, the 24th of March, and we're continuing looking at this higher Christian life. And today I want to basically just regroup. I want to step back. I want to share with you the testimony and some of the doctrine behind this second filling of the Holy Spirit, or as they say, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the higher Christian life, or power from on high, the second blessing, whatever you want to call it, that troubles a lot of us that haven't grown up in that persuasion, because we're quite honestly afraid of becoming a charismatic or a Pentecostal of the worst sort. It almost seems like a renunciation of what we've always stood for. And so what I want to do is share with you the testimony of a man today. His name may not be familiar with you if you're not a student of church history, but some of his accomplishments will. His name is Adoniram Judson Gordon. He was known as A.J. Gordon. He was born in 1836, died in 1895. He was an American Baptist preacher, writer, composer. He was also the founder of Gordon College, or as we know now, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, of which we have a campus here in Charlotte, North Carolina. A.J. Gordon, as he liked to be called, of course, was filled with the Holy Spirit, experienced what he called a baptism of the Holy Spirit long before that phrase even became popular. This happened to him 75 years before the Azusa Street Revival that began on April 9th, 1906 in Los Angeles, California, which is marked as the birth of the modern Pentecostal movement where they experienced for the first time glossolalia or the speaking in ecstatic utterances, slain in the spirit, and all the weird kind of stuff that we have a tendency of wanting to run away from. Long before that happened, A.J. Gordon experienced just like Dwight L. Moody, just like Spurgeon, just like all the other men of the Philadelphia church age, people that are anything other than charismatics. A.J. was a Calvinist who was also a Baptist American preacher at that time, so he's very staunch in reform in his theology, yet he received this infusion of the Holy Spirit that caused a lot of his contemporaries and a lot of his students to ask certain questions. And those are the questions that we all have in our mind. So I'm going to just pause here today, and I'm just going to read to you his testimony and read to you the theology that he had behind his experience that helped explain the man that he was and the man that he became in the hopes that it will begin to maybe satisfy some of the fears or some of the questions that we're struggling with ourselves. So let's go ahead and get started. A.J. Gordon says that one summer at a Northfield conference, he was speaking with D.L. Moody, and there was a bunch of students there. They, they traveled and did evangelistic meetings together, and he was asked by some of the students that were there, some of the young men that were going into the ministry, about this experience that he and both Moody claimed to have had with the Holy Spirit. It was something that was not taught in schools. It was something that was not popular at that time. It almost seemed like a fringe, unlike today. And when he was asked this question about the Holy Spirit, because his testimony 
about the Holy Spirit permeated all of his teachings, here's what Mr. Gordon said. He said, the questions which they asked about the work of the Holy Spirit are the hardest I have to answer. Questions of experience are so much more difficult than questions of doctrine. For while the, quote, testimony of the Lord is sure, the testimony of consciousness is variable, like the impression of a sea beach, which the next wave may change. So after Mr. Moody had given his experience of the baptism of the Spirit, because the students called for it, I confessed to much shrinking and reluctance when they made the same demand of me. The boys would have all that could be known, both of doctrine and experience, a hungrier crowd one rarely finds. May the Lord give us more and more to tell. And he began to recount in a book he wrote called How Christ Came to Church about how his ministry prior to this higher Christian life, this ministry as a pastor and an evangelist, even traveling with D.L. Moody at that time, was full of drudgery and desperation. And it was really quite depressing for him because he worked so hard and saw so little results. And this, by the way, is a common thread testimony we find through all these men that they work just as hard with the Spirit as without the Spirit, but with the Spirit, God blessed. Here's what he says. We do remember those days when drudgery was pushed to the point of desperation. The hearers must be moved to repentance and confession of Christ. Therefore, more effort must be devoted to the sermon, more hours to elaborating its periods, more time put into the sentences, more study on how to deliver it properly. And then came the disappointment that few, if any, were converted by all the work that was put into it. And now attention was turned to the prayer meeting as the possible seat of the difficulty, so few attending and so little readiness to participate in its services. A pulpit scourging must be laid on next Sunday. Again, this is their terminology almost 200 years ago. And the sharpest sting which words can affect be put into the lash. Alas, there is no increase in attendance. And instead of spontaneity in prayer and witnessing, there is silence, which seems almost like sullenness. I'll confess, this has also been my church experience, that you can browbeat from the pulpit. People still don't show up. And when they do show up, especially when it comes to prayer, let me ask you, who would like to lead in prayer? There's crickets, there's dead silence, until finally through guilt, somebody says, ah, I'll go ahead and pray. The same thing they were struggling with is the same thing we struggle with today. He continues, thus the burdens of anxiety increased while we're all trying to lighten them and should be helpers become hinderers till discouragement comes and sleepless night ensues and these hot boxes on the train of our activities necessitating a stop and a visit of the doctor with the verdict over work and the remedy absolute rest but nobody can do that pastor's job from personal experience is never done Here's what he says. It was after much of this, he continued, of which even the most intimate friends knew nothing, that there came one day a still voice of admonition, saying, there stands among you one whom you know not. And perhaps I answered, who is he, Lord, that I might know him? 
God spoke to Mr. Gordon and said, there stands one among you that you don't even know. Who is he, Lord, that I might know him? I had known the Holy Spirit as a heavenly influence to be invoked, but somehow I had not grasped the truth that he is a person of the Godhead who came down to earth at a definite time and who has been in the church ever since, just as really as Jesus was here during the 33 years of his earthly ministry. Then he brings this to the climax. Quote, how many true Christians toil on, bearing burdens and assuming responsibilities far too great for their natural strength, utterly forgetful that the mighty burden bearer of the world is with them to do for them and through them that which they have undertaken to accomplish alone. Happy also for these, if some weary day the blessed paraclete or the Holy Spirit, the invisible Christ, shall say to them, Have I been with you so long, and yet you haven't known me? And so Mr. Gordon says this happened to him. Here's what he says. The strong Son of God revealed himself as being evermore in the church, and I knew him though not through a sudden burst of revelation, not through some thrilling experience of instantaneous sanctification, but by a quiet, sure, and steady discovery, increasing upon more and more. Jesus and the Spirit stood with me in a kind of spiritual epiphany, and just as definitely and irrevocably as I once took Christ crucified as my sin-bearer, for salvation, I now took the Holy Spirit for my burden bearer, my burden bearer. When he received this infilling of the Holy Spirit, he said that it wasn't some ecstasy that's be kept to yourself. It wasn't some feel-good, warm experience that you exalt over other people. It wasn't for you alone. It, instead, it was a reality designed to empower you for work. One of the questions that we all struggle with is what we've been taught, that when the Holy Spirit comes at salvation and resides in you and is your deposit and guarantee of your future inheritance to come, that he comes with everything. He doesn't come just partially. He doesn't come 30%. You have to do some gymnastics to get him up to 70 or 80%, that he's always there. And so therefore, there's no need to have some second infilling of something that you already possess. And plus the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that became popular after the Azusa Street Revival and the modern charismatic movement and not necessarily a biblical phrase, although we find out that it is. So if the Holy Spirit resides in us, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body— 1 Corinthians 12, 13, how in the world can you, Dr. Gordon, and other people say that you have received something additional to that? Which is a great question. For our day, yes. For that day, especially. And here's how he answered that question. He says, for God to give is one thing, but for us to receive is quite another. Listen very carefully. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son is the word of our Lord to Nicodemus. But it is also written, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to be sons of God in order 
for us to realize regeneration and sonship, it is absolutely essential for us to receive what God has given. Think that through. So on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit as the comforter, the advocate, the helper, the teacher, the guide was given to the church. The disciples who before had been regenerated by the Spirit, as it is commonly held, now received the Holy Spirit to qualify and empower them for service. It was another and higher experience than that which they had known before. It is the difference between the Holy Spirit for renewal and the Holy Spirit for ministry. And then he gives these examples. Even Jesus begotten by the Holy Spirit and therefore called the Son of God, did not enter upon his public service until he had been anointed or sealed with the same Spirit through whom he had been born. So of his immediate apostles, so of Paul, who had been converted on the way to Damascus, so of the others mentioned in the Acts as the Samaritan Christians and the Christians from Ephesus. And not a few thoughtful students of Scripture maintain that the same order still holds for today, that there is such a thing as receiving the Holy Spirit in order to qualify and empower for service. It is not denied that many have had this blessing in immediate connection with their conversion, for it's not necessarily two separate acts. Only let it be marked that as the giving of the Spirit by the Father is plainly spoken of, so distinctly is the receiving of the Spirit on the part of the disciples constantly spoken of in Scripture also. He goes on, On the whole, and after a prolonged study of the Scripture, we cannot resist this conviction. And then he states it, As Christ The second person of the Godhead came to earth to make atonement for sin and to give eternal life. And as sinners must receive him by faith in order to have forgiveness and sonship. So the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, came to earth to communicate the power from on high. And we must, as believers in a like manner, receive him by faith in order to be qualified and equipped for service. Both gifts have been bestowed. Why then should we be satisfied with just the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace, from Ephesians 1.7, when the Lord would grant us also according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, from Ephesians 3.16. And then he gives this illustration, and I want you to think of a cable car, an electric car, you know, a train going down a, a road in Chicago, a city street in Chicago in the 1830s or 40s. Think of that as you listen to his description. Just in front of the study window where I write is a street, and above which it is said that a powerful electric current is constantly moving. I cannot see that current. It doesn't report itself to hearing or taste or sight or smell, and as far as the testimony of the senses is to be taken, I might reasonably assume it doesn't exist because I can't see it. But I see a slender arm called the trolley reaching up and touching it. And immediately the car with its heavy load of passengers moves along the track as though seized in the grasp of some mighty giant. 
The power had to be there before, only now the car lays hold of it, or is rather laid hold of by it, since it was a touch, not a rip, through whom the motion was communicated. And would it be presumptuous for one to say that he had known something of a similar contact with the divine force, but not a divine person? The change which ensued may be described thus. Instead of praying constantly for the descent of divine influence, there is now a surrender, however imperfect, to a divine and ever-present being. In other words, instead of praying for the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a surrender to the being of the Holy Spirit. Instead of a constant effort to make use of the Holy Spirit for doing my work, there has arose a clear and abiding conviction that the true secret of service lay in so yielding to the Holy Spirit that he might use me to do his work. I hope that you're seeing this common thread and this common teaching through every one of these heroes of the faith, that it's not asking the Holy Spirit to give you power to do your work, but it's yielding and surrendering to the Holy Spirit so he can do his work through you. I will close with one other comment by Dr. Gordon. And of course, as we've talked earlier, it's about the cost does this surrendering to the Holy Spirit cost anything? And here's what he says. It costs much to obtain this power. It costs self-surrender and humiliation and the yielding up of our most precious things to God. It costs the perseverance of long waiting and the faith of strong trust. But when we are really in that power, we shall find this difference, that whereas before it was hard for us to do the easiest things, now it is easy for us to do the hardest things. Why? Because it's God doing them through us. Please be encouraged today. Realize that what I'm sharing with you is real and it is available And it is so close to many of you. Once we commit to a full surrender to him, there's no telling what God can do for us. As I shared with you on Sunday, I had this small quote by D.L. Moody that I've carried with me for the past 30 years. And D.L. Moody, at the beginning of his ministry, simply said this, the world has yet to see what God can do to a man and for a man and through a man who is totally consecrated to him. With God's help, I will be that man. And D.L. Moody surrendered himself to the Lord, and he became that man, and the rest is history. The same history that can be yours for the asking. Be encouraged today, and I will talk with you again tomorrow. Until then.